And I invite you again to open to Matthew 13 this morning. Matthew 13. Hey guys, sorry, didn't uh, we mentioned last? This is your last Sunday, isn't it? Okay, all right. Well, <laughs> all right. So uh, make sure that you uh, you get to say goodbye to them before they head out. And someone remind me: Are you guys going to be here for the afternoon or not? Sure. Don't want to put you on the spot, but <laughs> okay. Then somebody remind me to to say a, a prayer for them uh, before we go. Okay. So Matthew thirteen. We're going to just begin by reading the text, which is very short, which always means a short sermon, right? Why are you laughing? All right. Matthew Matthew 13, verses 51 through 53. Jesus says to His disciples, Have you understood all these things? And they said to Him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. All right, that's it. <laughs> um, I stop there because that really is the end of a major section of Matthew if we are to understand sections as concluding with a recurring phrase that comes up five times in the book, which is recorded here in verse 53, when Jesus had finished these things, these sayings, and oftentimes it includes the idea that he went away or he went on to the next thing. Matthew says that five times. So there's kind of like five sections. Each one of these five sections of the gospel has a major block of Jesus' teaching and often ends with a major block of Jesus' teaching like this section does. And in this case, it's the teaching that he gives through parables that uh, we find all the way through Matthew chapter 13. There are seven of these parables that are short, illustrative stories or analogies to teach about the kingdom of heaven. That is the big theme, isn't it, in this chapter? Um, These are parables to illustrate the kingdom of heaven. So I want to talk about that and make sure that we understand that One author, um, theologian Greg Beale, says that Jesus actually speaks more about the nature of the kingdom than any other topic in the Gospels. Now, I didn't go back and read all four Gospels and highlight everything that Jesus talks about and try to verify that, but I I would not, I would imagine that that's pretty close to, to being accurate. So, if that's so important, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, Um, and Jesus talked about it so much in his earthly life, then it won't be our last time to talk about it because Matthew's going to bring this up again. But it's the last time we come to sort of this extended section of the parables of the kingdom. So let's make sure we understand the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. I'm going to put it up on the screen. I think we have it, right? Do we have it? 
Okay. Um, so this week I just wrote out this definition. It's probably not the absolute perfect definition, but I tried to incorporate everything that we've been learning together, Matthew, as well as things from other scriptures. So just try to, in as succinct a way I could, talk about what the kingdom of God is. So let's just look at it. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is God's end time rule over all things through his son and chosen king, the man, the God-man, Christ Jesus, for his eternal glory and the everlasting good of all his faithful subjects, inaugurated this kingdom with the coming and heavenly enthronement of the king, progressively manifest among the nations in this age, and visibly and fully consummated at his glorious appearing. So, can I highlight a few of the phrases here for you, just so so it sinks in? Um, What is the kingdom of God? Well, in the first place, I think the kingdom of God, at least as it's, it's, it's being described here in the Gospels as Jesus is talking about it, is eschatological. In other words, it's about the end times. This is God's, you see it, God's end time rule over all things. That is, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is God's end time rule through his chosen king, the Messiah, as opposed to talking about God's general sovereignty over all things. Because, of course, God is the king of everything, right? God's the maker. He is sovereign. When we talk about the kingdom of God, it's generally more specific than just the idea of his general sovereignty over everything, that he reigns as the king over all, which is true. Remember the vision that Daniel has in in um, in Daniel uh, of of uh, of the end of the kingdom, this kingdom that crushes all earthly kingdoms. That kingdom is said to be the vision is said to be for the latter for the latter days, the end times. Okay, so this is eschatological. This is also God's reign through His Son. So of course God reigns as God for all time, but the kingdom of God in particular is a reference to God's mediatorial reign. That is, God's reigning through Christ. He is reigning through, I put up here, the man Christ Jesus. Because Jesus really functions, and Paul talks about this in Romans 5, Jesus functions as the new Adam created in the image of God. And what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, we know this. One of the very first things after God created man in his own image, he said, and let let them have what? Dominion. That's a word of rule, authority, kingship. Um, So this now is, and of course, Adam and and all of us failed miserably to rule um, under God, over the created cosmos that he had made. But God has brought now a new man, a new Adam, who is the express image of his likeness, who will rule over all the created order. And he rules for God's glory. Why? Because he is the God-man. So it is God on the throne, And it is for our good, the good of all his faithful subjects. So, you know, who doesn't want to be a part of the kingdom 
ruled over by an all-sovereign king who rules totally for the good of his subjects, for their benefit, right? In fact, Paul in, in Ephesians says that God has given to Jesus Christ in his exaltation and enthronement, God has given to him authority over everything in the created world, put under his feet. But then it says, and God gave him as head over all things to the church for her good so that the church benefits from the overflow of God's intent to glorify His Son and set Him on the throne over all that God has made. This is for the good of His subjects. And notice I said, uh, for the good of all His faithful subjects. In other words, the kingdom of God has special application to, to the church, to God's people, to those with faith. Of course, God rules over all men, but in many ways, when we think of the kingdom, it is especially it, it is the benefits of the kingdom come to uh, those who are faithful to Him, those who are full of faith in Christ Jesus. And notice then the last three lines, it is inaugurated already at the first coming of Jesus Christ, and specifically at His heavenly enthronement. So we know the first coming of Christ is what? Incarnation, suffering, death, burial, and then we go up from there. This is all going down. Up from there, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. That is where he is seated in the right, at the right hand of God in the clouds of glory. Hidden from our view, so his his reign is invisible to so many people, but it's inaugurated. He's already entered into his kingdom. We're not waiting for his kingdom. It's here. It's inaugurated. But the second line, the second, you know, it's the last line, says that it's progressively manifest among the nations in this age. Can you think of a parable that illustrates that? The one that we talked about so far? The growth of the kingdom? The tree, right? The, the little mustard seed that grows into a tree or the leaven that's put into the lump and it grows, right? So it's progressively manifest among the nations, all of the nations, not just one, but all of the nations in this age. And finally, it is visibly and fully consummated at His glorious appearing. Or in other words, when His reign becomes visible and His rule obvious, then that kingdom will be manifest in all of its fullness. So that, I think, is a good way for us to think about the kingdom of God. Now, each of these parables, then, tells us something about the nature of the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom. And uh, so we need to think about those for a few minutes. And parables are meant to convey the mysteries of the kingdom. Notice verse 11. Take a look at the verse again. Verse number 11 in our text. We're going backwards, I realize. That's okay. See the word secrets? If you have an ESV, I don't know what the other ones have. I should have looked. I forgot. I haven't done it in a few weeks. The secrets is the word mysteries. Right. So these things are here to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom. Now, that's a word that's really important, and we've hit on it several times, but it's so central... And since this is my last opportunity probably in Matthew to really talk about mystery and its relation to parable, um, 
and to the kingdom of Christ, then I hope you'll sort of indulge me and give me the opportunity to just sort of step into teacher mode for a few minutes and, uh, and just enlighten us before we even finally come back to this text and, and draw an application, see what the application is for ourselves. So, what is a mystery? Um, a mystery, the idea of mystery is one of the most central concepts in understanding the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The concept of mystery. Um, And in turn, understanding the relationship of the Old Testament to the New is one of the most major issues in the entire Christian faith. So that means mystery is pretty important. Mystery is a major theme in a number of books in the New Testament. In fact, you might say in the entire New Testament, but it's brought up in Matthew, in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, in Ephesians, in Colossians, in 2 Thessalonians, in 1 Timothy, and of course in the book of Revelation. Very strongly here in Matthew 13, as well as the book of Ephesians, which we just looked at a while back, and uh, Corinthians is pretty strong, then of course Revelation All of these rely heavily on our understanding of mystery. The concept itself is rooted in the Old Testament. Surprise, surprise, right? Who would have thought that the New Testament writers would give us things that are rooted in the Old Testament? So we need to understand the unity of our Bibles and how they all fit together. This language is particularly rooted in the book of what? Daniel, right? The word is used nine times in the the Greek Old Testament, and all of them are in the book of Daniel. So that kind of narrows our search and uh, makes it uh, a little bit easier for us to begin to go. And if we go to Daniel, which I'm not going to do right now, we are going to turn there in a minute, but um, we've done it a couple of times in this series and back in, in Ephesians, you'll notice a couple of things. Two, I think, pretty important things about mystery from the book of Daniel. One is that the idea of mystery has to do with the last days, the end times. Daniel says in chapter 2, verse 28, that the mystery that God made known to King Nebuchadnezzar was about, quote, the latter days. Now that same idea, the New Testament writers pick up on and they apply to their day. That is the day of the coming of Jesus Christ, also called the fullness of what? Time. Or the end of the ages. These are all references to the coming of Jesus. So Daniel's writing looking forward to the coming of Christ in the last days, the latter times. That's the first thing to note about mystery. It has to do with last Number two, this plan, this mystery is on the one hand made known to the Babylonian king, Daniel chapter 2.28 tells us, but yet its real significance is still hidden from him. He doesn't understand this vision that he sees, but God gives to Daniel a revelation, verse 30, Daniel chapter 2, verse 30, a revelation of 
uh, with, with wisdom to understand the real significance of it. So, having said that then, we could say this, that the term mystery, as it's used in Daniel, which becomes the background for understanding the New Testament's use of it, the word mystery can refer to either the dream or its interpretation. In other words, mystery can be God's revelation in obscurity or His revelation in clarity or with understanding, right? Nebuchadnezzar had a revelation from God. Daniel had the revelation from God with full understanding. Both of them were God's revelation. In one, it was partially veiled. To the other, it was unfolded and unpacked. Understanding. God gave Daniel, the Old Testament says, understanding. And that word has become a key word in Matthew 13, hasn't it? Take a look. This is review time, okay? Because after all, the text is only two verses, so you've got to give me a little indulgence here. That word understanding that God gives to Daniel has become a key word in Matthew. Take a look at verse 13. Remember the crowds that came to hear Jesus speak? Jesus spoke to them, and He says in verse 13, hearing, He said, they've come to hear Me, but hearing, they do not hear, nor do they, what? Understand. They hear, but they don't hear. They understand what My words are, but they don't get it. They don't understand. Look at verse 14. Jesus references the prophecy of Isaiah and he said where Isaiah says you will hear but you will never understand you will never perceive we look at verse 15 again god deals with them the way that he does quote lest they should see and hear and understand with their hearts so what are the, what's true of the crowds? They're hearing, they're seeing, but they're not seeing. They're not hearing. They're not understanding. They see the, the vision and the dream. They hear the parable, but they don't get the meaning of it. Subsequently, in the parable of the soils, Jesus continues to bring up this word. Matthew does as well as he relays it. Um, the parable, uh, verse 19 the, where Jesus talks about the seeds that are sown on the ground and some seeds fall on the wayside or on the pathway. And he says those are the ones who obviously do not understand the message. It's not that, that he's talking about people who can't intellectually grasp the, you know, the meaning of the words that he's verbalizing. It means they don't spiritually apprehend it. And th but then again, on the other hand, the good soil, verse 23, take a look again. Here's the same word. It keeps coming up again and again and again. Verse 23, the good soil is the one who hears the word and understands it. In the language of another parable, he's the one who sees something valuable about the field that everybody else passes by. He, he knows. He gets it. They're, they're, this is a valuable piece of property. So, um, so understanding is a key term. That was what was given to Daniel to make sense of God's revelation. Now, in fact, 
Jesus said that his purpose in speaking to the crowd by means of parables um, was not only to reveal, but also to hide the truth from those who really didn't want to see it. Why did Jesus speak in parables? Well, to illustrate truth, yeah, but also to illustrate it in such a way that was obscure to certain people. And he said, some people just don't want to hear. So I just, this is the way I speak to them. He purposely tells vague stories, only giving a deeper understanding to his disciples. Parable then, are you following with me still? Parable is the language of mystery. Or to say it another way, the the medium is integral to the message. If the message is one that needs to be obscured for the purposes of God, because these people aren't, aren't, don't have ears to hear, if, if that's the purpose, then the right way to do it is parable. Parable is the language of mystery. It's a language that reveals, but only in obscurity to the crowds who come. And in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, we saw that Jesus said to God the Father, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Parables hide things. A mystery is a revelation, but it's a hidden revelation. Like the leaven that's hidden, Jesus literally uses that word, it's hidden in the lump of dough. Or the treasure that's hidden in the field. There are people who hear Jesus teaching and they just don't get it. They say, what's the big deal? What do you see in that? I don't get it. You know, he's just, uh, yeah, it's nice little stories and it's, it's good teaching, but it doesn't seem so ground-shaking to me. Why, are you, why do you want to leave everything that you have and go follow this guy? And people say that all the time today, right? You know, Christianity is a nice thing. You know, it's a good, gives you a good feeling that I'm glad for you, but, you know, I just don't get it. What's the big deal? What would make you change your whole lifestyle? Um, about this person, about this message. Of course, parables were meant to reveal things. They were. That's why we're studying the parables, right? If they weren't meant to reveal anything, we just skip over them. They are meant to reveal things. In fact, the entire Old Testament is kind of a mystery revelation. How does God reveal things in the Old Testament? In visions and dreams, types and shadows. You have to have really have eyes to see. And even for those with eyes to see, it's not always perfectly clear up front. Parables, uh, the Old Testament revelation was in parables, as it were, Genuinely revealing something in their day, though only in shadow form, but waiting to be fully revealed until the latter days, until the end of the ages. And the kingdom of God, Jesus said, is one of those mysteries. In fact, you might say that the kingdom of God is the summary of all mysteries. Partially revealed but not fully understood in the Old Testament. Many of the prophets spoke about God's glorious rule over His people in the last days. Some of you guys are reading 
uh, the Bible through. Um, you've read the Bible through before. You can think of passages like that, right? Where the prophets are writing about this glorious kingdom that God's going to establish. And many of them talk like this. In that day, in that day, or in the latter days, it's going to be like this. I mean, every utensil in the whole city is going to be holy to God. The whole city of Jerusalem is going to be like the temple itself. Even the pots that you cook in are going to be sacred vessels, right? You, you see these, this kind of language, and the prophets are talking about this great kingdom that's going to come in the latter days. But the nature of that kingdom and the manner of its coming wasn't always completely clear. It was temporarily hidden. In fact, Jesus makes that point here in verse 17. Take a look at 17 again. When he says, Many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Jesus is not talking about the crowds here, is he? He's talking about the righteous people, the prophets of old. Even they could not see always with clarity. And actually, Daniel himself was one of those prophets who couldn't quite see clearly. And here's where I want you to turn back just for a moment to Daniel chapter 12. So hold your little finger or your big finger here in Matthew and go back to Daniel chapter 12. And take a look at verse number 8. Now, you just think about all the things that are in Daniel, you know, these strange visions and dreams and animals and horns and mountains, and it's just a whole, you know, the whole thing is kind of puzzling to him. And here's what he says at the end, verse number 8, Daniel chapter 12. He says, I heard, I heard this revelation, but I did not what? There's our key word again. He says, I heard, but I didn't under, did not understand. So I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of what? The end. Daniel says, I don't quite get it. I mean, I kind of see, but I don't know if I really see. And what does he say? Let me explain. No, he says, close it up, and in the end, it'll be clear. Right? Or close it up until the end. But when the fullness of time was come, when the end came, God sent His Son into the world and revealed the interpretation of those things to His disciples. How did he do that? Well, partly through these parables of the kingdom, throughout all of the rest of his teaching, and especially in light of his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection and ascension. And, and so the disciples now, follow me, the disciples looking back on the Old Testament in light now of the revelation of Christ, all of his teaching and especially his work on the cross and his resurrection and ascension, looking back in light of those things, in hindsight, they began to see with a, a clarity that was unsurpassed at any time before. 
is sort of like watching a mystery program on television or on a, in a movie the second time around. Anybody ever watched a mystery or read a mystery book the second time? And uh, when we were young, and I've, I've used this illustration I know before, but when we were younger, before we had any children, my wife and I, when we would go on driving trips, she would read me mystery books because I like mysteries. I like to, you know, exercise my brain and try to figure it out who done it, you know. And some of you have done that. And we would stop all the time and say, you know, discuss our latest ever-changing theories about who the murderer might have been. And um, we just loved to do that. And we started watching adaptations of these mysteries on television and, and uh, enjoyed all of that. Well, now our kids are old enough to where, you know, they're enjoying some of those. And so we'll watch them together as a family. And it's almost, um, it's not quite as fun the second time around because you already know who done it, except for me because I forget. I forget every single one. So it's always a surprise to me. Um, but my wife, you know, she's sitting there. Oh, yes, I remember who did it. Tell me who did it. No, no, I can tell you. No. Um, so we're watching them together. And, uh, but, you know, sometimes I do remember. And as you're watching them, um, if you do remember who the murderer was, as you're watching or as you're reading, you see the clues all along. They're, they were actually there. You know, there, there were a lot of red herrings along the way. And there, were a lot of, there was a lot of obfuscation. That's the right word, right? But you saw, oh, now I see. Oh, I see clearly. Why didn't I see that? It was there all along, right? I think that's a good analogy for the way that these writers in the last days are able to look back on what God had intended to reveal all along and yet was revealed in in types and shadows, in the mist, in obscurity, in parable, as it were but from the light of the Lord Jesus and His teaching and especially His work in redemption, they're able to look back and see with a clarity that they've never had before. So a mystery is something that is partially hidden for a time, even from prophets and righteous people. But in addition to that, we have to say that the kingdom of Christ will continue to be a mystery for those who continue to stand in their unbelief. Are you still in Daniel 12? Okay. Look at verse 10 now. Remember Daniel said, I don't understand. The angel said, close it up till the end of time. And the end of time, well, we'll see. Look at verse 10. Now he's speaking about the future about the the latter times. And he says, Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And even in the last days, he says, None of the wicked shall what? There's our word again. None of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. What Daniel says, I don't get right now. God says, okay, seal it up until the end. And in the end, those who are wise, they'll get it. They'll understand. When when Christ comes, it'll all become clear. And those who truly belong to God, they'll say, I see. This is what God told us all along. And the light will go off, right? But he says, 
Some will yet remain without understanding. And that is exactly, Jesus said, what was happening through the preaching of his parables. He was revealing and yet concealing. Mystery, now follow this, mystery has implications both for the history of redemption and God's act of salvation. It has implications for what theologians call the historia salutis and for the ordo salutis, which is to say, in other words, that mystery means that something is hidden on one hand in a temporary way, but on another hand in a permanent way. Temporary in the sense that it was partially revealed, but still hidden throughout the Old Testament, awaiting its full disclosure in the New. But the idea is that a mystery is a permanent hiding of the truth in that it is hidden, even while it's being preached, it is hidden from unbelievers. But yet it is fully disclosed to God's elect, to those who receive what the Lord has to say. So that is, I think, such an important concept for you to get. Um, that whole idea of mystery. Now, these parables then are are an expounding of the mystery of the kingdom of God that we talked about at the beginning. And that brings us finally then to our text, verse number 51. There's a question, an answer, and then in consequence of the answer, there is a short analogy. Here's the question. Jesus asks them, in light of all of this explanation that he's given, all of this revelation that he has given about the mystery of the kingdom of God, he says in verse number 51, have you what? There's the word again. Have you understood these things? This is like the application of the sermon. Jesus has preached this whole you know, series of little sermons. And now he comes to the end. And like any good preacher, he says to you, in the audience, he says, do you get it? Do you understand? Is this true for you? Has the light come on? Has Christ become the treasure for you? Right? The, the point is not the Lord asking them merely, do you understand these things intellectually? But hearing, do you really hear? and perceive. Seeing, do you really see? Has the kingdom and the king become a treasure to you for which you would forsake everything? And, and I, what I want to do right now is just take this moment so that Jesus can tell, ask this question to all of us. We've come through a whole chapter of teaching and we've worked our way through trying to understand it. And I want to put it to you. Do you spiritually apprehend these things? Has the kingdom and the king become precious to you? 
has the light bulb come on? Have you ever said, I get it. I get it. Has the gospel ever become real for you? Have you come to church? What I'm always concerned about is that you or I would come to church and every week sit and kind of maybe get our mental thinking stirred a little bit, but walk out and kind of quickly just sort of forget. And it never really has any impact on our souls. We never get it. We never hear with understanding. And my prayer is that it would not It would not be that way for you, but that the Spirit of God through the Word would turn the light on. That these things would be significant for you, that they would be weighty, that they would shape your very thinking and your very affections. Your whole way of living would be transformed by them. Not because somebody on the outside is telling you, you know, you have to conform to this, but because you're being transformed internally because inside you're being illuminated. You're hearing. It's becoming genuine for you. Some of you are are young people who've grown up here and your parents have taught you the Word of God. And what they want more than anything else, what they pray to God for, is that for you, you finally come to the point where you say, yes, This is true. It's real. I get it. Open your heart to the Lord. Open your mind to the Word of God. Pray and call out to Him and ask Him to reveal these things to you. Because in truth, understanding is beyond you. Right? Uh, Could Nebuchadnezzar, could, could... could the, the people who had uh, the, this partial revelation from God have, have discerned the real sense of these things and especially spiritually discerned them apart from the gift of understanding and wisdom that God gave to Daniel and through Daniel? Not at all. No more can any of us apart from the gift of God But there's hope, because the hope is you get on your knees and you confess to God. You say, God, I don't always get it. I sin and my mind is so darkened and I ask you to deliver me from my darkness and open up my ears so that I can actually hear and and really hear. I mean, so I can apprehend what you have to say. And friend, I'll tell you, the Lord is merciful. He Here's the prayers of those who are humble in heart. The question is, do you hear? Do you understand? Do you understand? What about you? You and you and you. Do you understand? And the answer, of course, that they gave was one word. What did they say? Yes. Right? You see it? Verse 51. Jesus said, do you understand? Yes. Now, what do you think about that answer? Well, if you know anything that's coming up, you might question their answer a little bit, maybe, right? You might, if you were Jesus, you might go, really? 
You really understand? Because in the future, they're going to they're going to manifest a misunderstanding in pretty, pretty regularly and in pretty dramatic ways. Um, John especially, I remember when we were studying through John years ago, he kind of tended to highlight this, saying um, in, in, in a couple of places, maybe several, you know, he said, we really didn't understand what he was talking about back then. But now we see, you know, something along that line. As yet, the disciples did not understand, he'll write self-effacingly. And it's true. They didn't get it. In fact, later on, we're gonna, when we get to Matthew chapter 16, um, we'll see an example of this. And you know, the truth is we, just like the disciples, we get so fixated on earthly things that sometimes we don't, our spiritual understanding is dimmed also. So in Matthew chapter 16, for example, right after Jesus, uh, right after Matthew, excuse me, records Jesus' feeding of 4,000 men plus all their women and children with seven little loaves of bread and a few fish, after he records that, the disciples get into a boat, they go across the sea, and Jesus in, begins to instruct them. He wants to teach them spiritual things. And he, you remember what he says? He says, disciples, men... Listen, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And you know where their minds are? They start thinking, oh, we forgot to bring food for the trip. We forgot bread. That's why he's talking about leaven. We forgot the bread. Oh, we're going to be in trouble. What are we going to do? He's trying to teach them deep spiritual truths, and they're just thinking about dinner, right? Have you ever been there? I mean... God says to you, the Lord says, do you understand? And you're, and you're thinking about lunch. Jesus chides them. He says, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not understand? Do you not remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves and the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Why are you worried about food? I mean, especially in light of what I just did. What's wrong with you guys? Right? Do you think the Lord ever feels that way with you? What's wrong with you? Don't you get it? Don't you see? I'm trying to tell you something significant, and you're just thinking about lunch. You're just thinking about your car. You're just thinking about, you know, I don't know, your next vacation, whatever it is. You're just consumed with something. You're, you're like totally deaf again and blind again. He says... How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then Matthew says, then finally they understood, again our key term, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So that's, that's the disciples, and that's who they are and that's who they're going to be. When Jesus asks them, do you understand? And they give the answer, yes. But instead of going like this, Jesus takes their affirmation of faith at face value. And he deals graciously with them. This is what I love about this. 
and he tells them a parable about ministering from the treasure that they've been given to dispense it to others. As if they understand. As if they get it completely. Our Lord is so gracious with our limited and failing understanding. He wants us, He wants to deal with our hearts and we're just, you know, thinking about the things of the world. But we say, I don't know if you've ever said this to Him, Lord, I believe, help my, what? Unbelief. Lord, I see, but I wish I could see more clearly. Lord, in spite of all my failures, my hope is in You. I, I have come to, to believe that, you know, if, 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 if you were to... I, I just hear, I feel like this. Where else would I go? You have the words of eternal life. I mean, uh, there might be times when I fall and when I'm blind and when I'm deaf and I don't understand and the things of the Spirit of God seem so far away. And, but at my core, this is what I... This is, you are my hope, and I do see. I do see. Not like I want to, but I see. I understand. And I think that's the sense the disciples were giving. You know, we, we do believe in You, Lord. And the Lord just condescends to their limitations. And He's gracious with our slowness. Amen? If you lack wisdom, this phrase, this sentence has become so precious to me. If you lack wisdom... If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all men without reproach. Doesn't say, you should have more wisdom by now. I've given you tons of wisdom and you just don't get it. No, you just come to him and say, Lord, I don't, I don't have the wisdom I need. I don't see. Help me to see. And he's gracious as he was with these men. And that brings us to this, the finally, the question, or the question, the answer, and then Jesus takes that answer at face value, and in light of that answer, he tells a little short parable that will describe the ministry of the apostles. And here's the little parable. Every scribe, he says, who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new, and what is old. So first of all, Jesus is not talking about himself. He's because he's talking about every scribe. There are multiple scribes here that he has in mind. Um, I think he's talking about his disciples, specifically these apostles that, are, that he's speaking to. And he calls them scribes, which is a funny way to talk to them, because most of the time when we read about, read about scribes in the New Testament... Is it positive or negative? Very negative, right? The scribes and the Pharisees, right? And of course, these men were not literally scribes. Um, I mean, some people think if you sort of take the word scribe and broaden it far enough, you can fit Matthew in there as a tax collector. Maybe he was a scribe of some sort. But typically, the scribes were the people who were, well, originally the idea is kind of the copyists of the law, the Old Testament, but also secondarily and more predominantly in, in, in most con contexts, the idea is that they were the teachers of the law. They were the learned ones. They knew the Scriptures. They knew the Old Testament. I think what Jesus is saying here is this, that His apostles, 
are a kind of a new order of scribes, trained not merely in Old Testament types and shadows, but enlightened by the one to whom all of those types and shadows pointed. Not like the scribes of Jesus' day who were completely blinded because of their unwillingness to hear even what God had revealed in the Old Testament, but whose hearts had been opened by the grace of God to understand. And as such, these men became transcribers of a new revelation. That is the New Testament. They were scribes of the kingdom, if you will, just as there were scribes before them. Scribes who were also like managers of a household, right? He says, here's the the analogy now. He says, you're like a household manager who goes into the storeroom and he dispenses from the, the treasure of the house what the household needs. And Paul, in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, describes himself exactly that way. He said, he and the other apostles of Jesus Christ were stewards or managers of the, here's another one of our key words, the mysteries of God. They dispensed, they made clear what was revealed through all the Old Testament, now in the clarity of hindsight in the coming of Christ. These apostles then are to bring out from the treasure, and they will, he says, you will bring out from the treasure or the storeroom what is new, And what is old, which points us to the beautiful unity of the Bible. The coming of the new doesn't make the old obsolete. We don't throw out our Old Testaments because it only applied to those people long, long ago, or it has to do with some people far, far away, not not really about us. These people were to bring out from the storeroom things both new. And old. Jesus said in Matthew 5, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. Mystery means that the New Testament interprets and fulfills the old. Let me say that again. Mystery means that the New Testament interprets and fulfills the old. And that, I think, is probably one of the most important principles that you'll ever come across for understanding the whole Bible. Jesus commissioned these men, these these apostles, and the New Testament prophets connected with them to fully reveal what the whole Bible had been partially revealing up to that point in history. And the Spirit of God would take what they wrote and would illuminate the hearts of the hearers and give them understanding so that they could enter into the kingdom of God and into a relationship with the king. So I want to close this way by admonishing you to a careful attention to how New Testament writers interpret and apply the Old Testament to learn how to read your Old Testament by watching how the New Testament writers read the Old Testament. 
by urging you to continue to read the whole Bible in light of Jesus Christ, who is the one unifying central theme. Charles Spurgeon told the story of an older minister who listened to a sermon that was being preached by a young guy in the ministry, and and the young man afterwards came up to the older preacher and asked him, you know, how did I do? Just like all young preachers do. And he says the old man was slow to answer, but at last he finally said, well, if I must tell you, I did not like it at all, for there was no Christ in your sermon. No, said the young man. No, because I did not see Christ in that text, he said. Oh, said the old minister, do you not understand that from every little town and hamlet across England, there's a road that runs out of town. And those roads converge, and they converge to other roads, and in in the ultimate sense, all of those roads lead to London. So the man said, you know, all of the Bible, it points to Jesus Christ. It's all about Him, young man. And he said, "You, you get to Jesus no matter what you have to do. Or you miss the whole point. Read your Bible like that. Can I admonish you to to pray for understanding? Understanding of the Word, for eyes to see the kingdom of heaven. Pray for ears to hear. Pray for illumination, for the light to come on, to have those aha moments both intellectually as you're engaging with the text that God revealed word for word, and also experientially as those texts become alive in you and you see more clearly how to live and how to grow and how to draw near to God through what He has revealed. I want you to have those aha moments when you say, I understand. I understand the text. And I understand it in my life. I see it. It's real. It's true. I want to ask you, when was the last time you had an aha moment? Give yourself to the Word. Open up the Word. Dig in. See what's there. Get on your knees and say, Lord, help me to see. Help me to understand. Let this become real in my heart. Our Heavenly Father, we need You to come and open our eyes to grant us understanding and wisdom that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, that we may know the hope of our calling and our inheritance in Christ and the power of of His resurrection in our very lives. Lord, we long to know more of the actual resurrection power of Jesus in our experience. We long to have those moments where our hearts are warmed and our eyes are opened and these truths become real and meaningful to us. Lord Jesus, please be merciful in our our lack of understanding. And we pray, Lord, that to those who have, more may be given.
we would not be as those from whom even what they have is taken away. In Jesus' name, amen.